So I've bitten off uh, what may be more than I can chew, we'll see. I plan to conclude my series on bibliology this morning by bringing to you uh, the doctrines of uh, canonicity as well as illumination, and we'll also talk a little bit about the composition uh, of the Old and New Testament. So um, we will get to scripture in a few minutes, but uh, we'll be talking a little bit about history um, up to that point. So let's talk about the composition of the Bible. Um, how do we get the Bible? Uh, we have uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, we have the New Testament, which are the Gospels, the uh, Epistles, and uh, the Revelation of, uh, of John. Um, how were they written? When were they written? Um, what evidence do we have uh, that suggests that uh, these uh, um, Scriptures have been with us as long as they have? So, <clears throat> a little bit of, about the comp uh, composition of uh, the text. First of all, uh, the Old Testament. So, um, for a very long time, uh, the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had uh, were the Masoretic text. Uh, the Masoretic text dates as far back as roughly about 900 AD. Um, it was copied by a, a group called the Masoretes, hence the name Masoretic text. Um, a few things about uh, that particular text that we have. Um, the Masoretes were known to be uh, extremely uh, strict about the way that they copied the scriptures. They took it very seriously um, to the point where uh, right down to the letters, right down to the number of lines, uh, they knew these exactly and they would copy them over and over and over again. So <clears throat> some of the things that they used as regulation of uh, uh, Recording the, or uh, re rewriting the, the scriptures uh, over and over again, um, making new copies of them, uh, would be the type of parchment that they would use, uh, the number of lines, uh, color of ink, um, and so on and so forth. So um, we, we actually um, we know um, that. So, okay, an example of that would be. Uh, in terms of uh, the letters, uh, the letters that they uh, counted in the Old Testament scriptures, um, they would actually go through and count every time a letter would occur. We kind of see this similarly in uh, concordances. Uh, for instance, like Strong's is a pretty common uh, concordance uh, where we see every single instance of a word being used throughout every single book. Uh, so the Masoretes, for instance, uh, they counted that the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the letter A, um, in the Hebrew alphabet, appeared 42,377 times in the Old Testament. Now, to us, that seems like uh, just a superfluous detail that uh, why would anybody bother to memorize that? But to them, this was a way that they could make sure that the accuracy was maintained from every single copy that existed. Because if they had a copy that had any less or any more than that amount of letters, they would throw it out and start copying it all over again. And so we see this time and time again throughout the scriptures, and this gives us... Uh, security and confidence uh, in their accuracy. <clears throat> um, when a, a word or a statement uh, appeared in one of the texts that uh, was considered to be questionable, uh, perhaps a, a spelling error or something like that, um, they would generally make a uh, notation uh, in the margin. Uh, this is referred to as uh, so the, uh, an incorrect um, uh, statement that appeared or a word uh, would be referred to as a katib. 
um, the corrected suggestion they refer to as a uh, cure. Uh, so they would make this notation in the margin uh, suggesting that this may be uh, a spelling error or an incorrect uh, word. Uh, and then that notation would be passed on to uh, the scribes as they would continue. And so, again, they're scrutinizing these texts very closely to make sure that they're maintaining the utmost of accuracy. Um, so the Masoretic text, uh, which is written in Hebrew, uh, like I said, the oldest copies of that that we had in existence uh, were dating as far back as 900 AD. This was until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, date back uh, as far as uh, 125 BC. So we have almost a thousand years now uh, of texts that we can analyze dating back from uh, what was, up until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Hebrew text from 900 AD. Now we have all the way back to 125 BC. And again, we see very little uh, difference in these texts. We see the accuracy has been maintained. An example of that would be the Isaiah scroll. Um, when the Isaiah scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, was examined and scrutinized, um, very little difference was found uh, between that and the Masoretic text. And so we see that this uh, consistency has been maintained uh, for a thousand years up to that point, and then you know a thousand years beyond that as well, all the way up to the present day. Um, we also have the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint uh, was a copy of the Old Testament uh, that was written in Greek uh, by Jewish uh, scholars. So these Jewish scholars, uh, they spoke Hebrew, but they also spoke Greek. They wrote a translation for those who spoke Greek uh, in, uh, um, after Greek became the predominant language. Um, there were... Reportedly 70 scholars that worked on this, which is where we get the uh, term Septuagint from, uh, which uh, refers to the number of scholars that worked on it. This is why you also see the uh, um, Septuagint referred to as the LXX, which is just Roman numerals. Um, the Septuagint was... We can date the Septuagint back to anywhere from 250 to 150 BC. Um, this is important to note because when we're examining the Old Testament, we have a couple of questions we can ask. So we know that it was originally written in Hebrew. It was given to the Hebrew people. However, um, we have the Masoretic text, which dates back to 900 AD, as far as the oldest copies of it that we've been able to find. We've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that do contain uh, texts going back to 125 BC, but then we actually have... Um, the Septuagint, which predates both, and the Septuagint is written in Greek. So what do we look at for accuracy? Do we look at the Hebrew text, because it was written in Hebrew originally, even though we have uh, an older copy uh, existing in Greek that was copied from the Hebrew? And when we examine the two uh, side by side, we see generally um, there are very few differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text or uh, between any of the other Hebrew texts uh, that we have available to us. Now, that's not to say that there are no significant differences. That's just to say that there are very few. Uh, in some cases, the Septuagint does uh, elaborate on a few verses and uh, add some uh, additional material. Um, is it consequential? Again, that's the question we have to ask because, for instance, um, to provide an example, um, in the book of First Samuel, uh, does everybody remember the account of the um, 
the Ark of the Covenant being taken uh, captive by the Philistines. So uh, in that account, uh, when they return the Ark, uh, they make golden uh, emeralds, as they're referred to, which is basically the word for hemorrhoids, which could just be tumors or boils or whatever uh, they were cursed with. Uh, they get, make golden images of those. They also make golden images of mice. Now, the text that we have doesn't really elaborate on that. In the Septuagint, we find that there's actually a, a slightly expanded uh, account of that that uh, mentions that there was a plague of mice in the Philistine <clears throat> cities, which has led a lot of scholars to believe that maybe the um, boils that uh, the Philistines developed were actually a, a type of bubonic plague. And now, that's all speculation, but it's just to say that there is that additional detail in the Septuagint does it change what we believe about salvation in Christ? Absolutely not. Is it uh, a detail that helps us to maybe understand the account uh, a little better so that we're not as foggy on the details? Sure. Um, so we can take that for what it is. We also have uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, which is the Samaritan um, uh, book of the law, uh, the first five books of Moses. Um, this was... A translation that was specifically for the uh, Samaritans uh, who were worshiping at Mount Gerizim. Um, it's independent of the Masoretic text, but once again, there's very little difference between it and the Masoretic text. So again, there's still that consistency, and it gives us yet another text uh, from the Samaritans that we can use uh, compared to the actual Hebrew text and see the consistency. Um, and then finally we have the uh, Aramaic Targums, uh, which were, the Aramaic Targums uh, aren't necessarily exact uh, word-for-word -word translations, so think of um, what we have in the modern uh, day as translations like um, the Living uh, Translation, or the, uh, the NLT, or uh, even beyond that, something like the Message. Uh, it's more of a paraphrase, um, it's more of just... Um, writing down the accounts, but not actually copying word for word the text. Um, but once again, uh, we don't have um, we don't have necessarily notable differences uh, so much as just a very free method of copying the stories. So instead of worrying about the exact word counts and line for line, they're just providing us a paraphrase. Uh, in terms of uh, the New Testament, um, New Testament, we've got either complete collections of the New Testament or uh, at least portions, large portions of the New Testament. We've got uh, in the range of, I believe, yeah, 5,000 uh, manuscripts. Uh, these include papyrus manuscripts. Papyrus was an old form of paper uh, that was um, created from the stems of uh, papyri uh, papyrus plants. Um, one of those uh, to provide as an example would be the Chester Beatty uh, papyrus, which dates back to the third century. Um, interesting thing about the Chester Beatty papyrus um, is that it is one of many, many uh, ancient manuscripts that include literature uh, that mentions uh, the names of Janus and Jambres, who we see Paul reference in Second Timothy. Um, there are no references in the Bible to Janus and Jambres. Uh, all of the references to Janus and Jambres come from outside of the Bible, so clearly Paul is referring to extra-biblical material. Uh, does that mean that it's inspired? 
of course, that would just be speculation to assume that it's inspired, but we know that it's at least something that he saw as being uh, trustworthy enough that he would share that as being factual information. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Janus and Jambres are the names of, or at least the speculated names of the uh, magicians in um, Exodus that uh, Pharaoh used to um, simulate the uh, plagues of Moses. So we, we see uh, in the Chester B.D. Um, papyrus that uh, there are some documents that refer to Janus and Jambres. Uh, they, their names appear all throughout Jewish writings and other writings as well. Uh, Paul could have easily read it anywhere, um, but we know he at least accepted those names as being reliable. Um, whether he accepted the texts, that's a different story. Um, we've got uh, what are referred to as uh, uncial manuscripts that um, are all capital letters. Um, the, uh, some examples of those, we've got the Codus Vaticanic, uh, Vaticanus, uh, which dates back to the 4th century, the Codex Sinaiticus, um, it contains all of the New Testament, that's dated, uh, back to 331 AD, uh, we also have Alexandrinus, which dates back to the 5th century, and, uh, there are many more. Um, we've got minuscule manuscripts. Minuscule manuscripts are exactly the opposite as the uncial manuscripts. Instead of being all capital letters, they're very small letters. Um, and uh, the minuscule manuscripts, uh, normally they're not as old as the uncial manuscripts. Um, and sometimes uh, we see similar similarities in the text types, which then leads us to build text families of these manuscripts um, that all have similarities. Um, there are also different Syriac versions, uh, ranging uh, throughout the 2nd century uh, all the way up to the 5th century AD. We, of course, have the Latin Vulgate, which was translated by Jerome uh, in 400 AD. And the Latin Vulgate, would, um, which was written in Latin, which was the uh, language of the church at that time in Rome, uh, would be heavily influential on uh, the Western Church. Uh, so we see that throughout Catholicism and even uh, going forward into uh, Protestantism, it had a huge influence on the development of the Western Church. Uh, meanwhile, then we also have uh, other versions, uh, Coptic uh, translations, which would be heavily influential in Egypt. Uh, so that's just a, a very brief and condensed history of some of the manuscripts we have, but the point being that we have a numerous uh, supply of ancient manuscripts uh, and through textual criticism and archaeology we've been able to uh, scrutinize these manuscripts and see that there is uh, generally uh, a consistency throughout uh, no matter what time period they date to no matter what cultures they're found in and so this uh, once again gives us assurance that the biblical uh, text that we have today comes from a uh, trustworthy tradition of scribal copying that dates back, you know, to the time before Christ. Any questions on that? I know this isn't exactly the most exciting stuff to learn in Sunday school, which is probably why it's never taught, but uh, it is nonetheless uh, important for us because uh, as I've been communicating throughout this uh, lesson series, uh, and especially last week when we covered um, some archaeological evidence that uh, answered uh, some objections um, by skeptics. Um, all of this just helps us to better understand uh, the culture that these texts were written in, uh, better understand the text that we have, and also just strengthen our own faith. Uh, because the more we understand what's written, uh, the more 
we can actually uh, develop our relationship uh, with God. Because obviously he clearly wanted us to have these um, these texts to this day, uh, and he's preserved them supernaturally as such. All right, so that uh, covers the composition. Now we're going to get into a slightly more controversial topic, the canon. Um, again, something that's seldom taught, and I'm not really going to do it justice uh, this morning because of uh, limited time, but I encourage all of you to definitely study this uh, uh, outside of um, Sunday school. So, in terms of the canon, um, first of all, to, to define terms, uh, the term canon uh, just simply um, is a term that, um, is, it's actually a, a Greek term, um, and uh, it also has a, a Hebrew counterpart, uh, so the, the Greek word is canon, uh, with a K instead of a C, uh, and then the uh, Hebrew word is uh, kana. And uh, they are referring to a measuring rod. So it's basically something that you, you would use as a measurement tool. And what we're measuring in this instance is the authenticity of the books. Uh, so we're looking at the books that are included in our Bible, and we're measuring, you know, are they accurate? Are they trustworthy? Are they actually something that was inspired by God? And should we use them uh, in our own worship? And should they be read in the churches? And that's a very important distinction to make because you'll see that a lot of different cultures that uh, have slightly different canons, um, they still make distinguishments between what is acceptable to read in the church and what is just good for reading outside of the church on one's own uh, for the purpose of... Um, learning maybe about uh, the culture or uh, elaborating on a certain text. So, um, talking about the uh, Old Testament canon. So, uh, the Old Testament, uh, our Old Testament is generally divided into 39 books. Um, while this differs in number from the Jewish Old Testament, uh, it doesn't differ in content. And let me explain that. Uh, so the Jewish Old Testament generally is divided into either 22 or 24 books. However, all of their books are the same as ours. They just divide them differently. So we're looking at 22 or 24 compared to 39, but all of the content's the same. And they also have slightly different orders that they include the books. But again, all the content is the same. So um, the... Uh, Hebrew Old Testament is generally referred to as the Tanakh, which is uh, taken from the uh, first letters of the three divisions, uh, the Torah, the uh, Nevim, and the Ketavim. Uh, so the Torah is the first five books of Moses, sometimes referred to as the books of the law, the Pentateuch, etc. Uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then uh, they look at the Nevim as being the prophets. Now, here's where they differ slightly. Um, so what they consider the prophets are Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then the major and the minor prophets. So they include um, what we sometimes refer to as being the history books, uh, such as Joshua, Judges, uh, for Samuel, First Kings, they include those in the prophets. And the reason being is because those individuals uh, that they are looking at as, as having written those books, they're claiming that those books were written by people who were prophets because they were given directly the word of God. So, for instance, Joshua, they consider a prophet because uh, he was instructed to write all of this down in his book. Uh, then um, they... Um, have the writings, which is uh, the Ketuvim, uh, and again, this is slightly different than uh, the way that we separate them. 
so what they include in the writings is, um, and, and these are sometimes referred to as the Psalms, uh, they have the poetry and the wisdom books, which are Psalms and Proverbs and Job. Uh, they have what they refer to as the rolls, uh, which are Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Uh, and then they have what they refer to as being the historical books. And these would be Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. So like I said, all of the same content, just different order and uh, different groupings. Um, and the way that they reach the, uh, the combination of uh, 24 as opposed to 39, so what they do is they combine First and Second Samuel, they combine First and Second Kings, they combine First and Second Chronicles, they combine all the minor prophets together into one book, uh, and then they also combine Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, we can actually see this reflected uh, in a couple of different places in Scripture. We can actually open our Bibles now for the first time. Uh, we'll go to uh, Luke chapter 24. verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, we see Jesus himself speaking, um, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then uh, opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So, uh, not only is he referring to that division uh, of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, but then the very next, ber- the very next verse refers to that as being scripture. Uh, so, he's clearly referring to the Old Testament division there. Um, some extra-biblical sources that also um, verify that. Um, Josephus refers to the threefold division uh, in his writings, uh, Bishop Melito of Sardis. Um, so Josephus would be first century, uh, Bishop uh, Melito is second century, uh, Tertullian, uh, which would be a third century source. Um, now, um, I, I haven't had a chance to study this very thoroughly, uh, this one uh, thing that I'm going to share, but uh, has anybody here uh, heard reference to the, uh, the Council of Jamnia? Okay. Uh, so if anybody ever mentions the Council of Jamnia, because I, what I'm, I'm really focused on doing this morning is giving you guys um, not just speculation, but something that you can really take to a conversation over uh, biblical authority and accuracy. So the Council of Jamnia uh, purportedly uh, occurred in AD 90. Um, and actually, one of the books I've been using as a resource uh, refers to it as being an absolutely 100% confirmed factual event. And I've seen this in other texts as well. Um, the first reported um, instance of someone referring to the Council of Jamnia as being when the Old Testament uh, canon was finalized, however, dates only as far back as 1871. Um, and this is based on a very loose interpretation of some different man, uh, 
manuscripts of uh, different writings uh, that are simply just referring to the Jews getting together and discussing certain texts as to whether or not they are actually in canon or out of canon, but there's no actual list provided. So sometimes you'll hear apologists mention the Council of Jamnia uh, in favor of uh, the Jewish canon being finalized in 8090. Sometimes you'll see skeptics attack the Council of Jamnia, saying that it's nothing more than a myth. Honestly, we don't know. Uh, it's the very uh, simple explanation. A lot of scholarship recently has actually uh, refuted um, the position that there even was a Council of Jamnia. Um, there were certainly members of the Jewish community meeting, discussing uh, the texts, uh, which were authoritative and which were not. That's as far as we know. So if anybody ever mentions that, I just want to give that uh, to you guys. to and, and again, feel free to study this on your own outside of this class. Um, I'm sure there's a wealth of information written on it. Um, so, uh, generally, in terms of how the canon was recognized, um, the canon, as we recognize it, is not something that necessarily comes from any group of people coming together and determining that this is or is not canon, but rather this, is, this was an organic process as the Old Testament was being written. And we'll see the same in the New Testament. Uh, when books were written, they were immediately scrutinized by the people, and we can see that throughout the scriptures, that certain books were seen immediately after being written as being uh, inspired by God, and then they were included in the text. We kind of went over that in some previous classes when we talked about prophecy, uh, and whether or not prophecy was... Um, considered to be true or false. Uh, we saw some of the criteria that um, the Bible uh, provided to us on that subject. Uh, so we can look at a couple of examples here. Um, we can look at Exodus uh, chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, uh, verse 14. Uh, this is following the uh, attack on the Israelites by the Amalekites. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So we see that uh, Moses is given uh, explicit instruction by God to record what just happened which we have recorded in that very same chapter in our Bible, uh, and to uh, read it to Joshua and to keep it for future generations uh, so that they know about the judgment being passed on the Amalekites. Uh, keeping in the same book in Exodus 34, we see something similar. Uh, Exodus 34, 27 And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And this is following uh, after he gave the law at Mount Sinai back in chapter 20. This is after he's given the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, uh, and he's given uh, uh, some additional laws. And so all of these things have been given to Moses to communicate to the people, the laws, the building instructions for the tabernacle, and he's saying, write this down. Um, 
and he's spe specifically referring to the words that he made uh, that are a covenant with, uh, with Moses and with Israel. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these uh, explicitly just for time's sake, but we have some other examples in uh, the book of Joshua, in uh, chapter 8, verse 31, and in chapter 23, verse 6. Um, and then um, that's referring to the, the book of Moses. So generally, one of the um, criteria for uh, whether something's included in canon is uh, does it refer to the book of Moses, and does it refer authoritatively to the book of Moses? Does it see that as being written by Moses and as the word of God? Um, we also see, uh, following Moses, um, we see God raising up the prophets, uh, and again, uh, I've given some examples in previous classes where we discussed uh, prophecy. Um, the prophets will generally say, you know, this is a prophecy, or this is a vision that I received from God, and then they'll give it a time stamp, you know, this was in uh, years such and such of the reign of this king or that king, or, or whatever. Um, so uh, we see that, uh, multiple examples of that. Uh, we can go to Joshua chapter 24. Keeping in mind, again, that the, uh, in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, Joshua is considered one of the prophets. Uh, in Joshua 24, verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up uh, there under an oak. That was the sanctuary of the Lord. So he's recording uh, the account that we find written in the entire book of Joshua, and he's adding that to the book of the law, which is the book of Moses, which Joshua himself already has recognized in previous chapters as being uh, inspired by God. And so now that's being added to the canon of Scripture. So now... At this time, we have the books of Moses, and now we have the book of Joshua. And you see that kind of confirmation continue throughout the Old Testament. Um, we see the same thing in uh, Samuel. Uh, we see the same thing in Isaiah. We see the same thing in Ezekiel, and so on and so forth. And in some cases, we also see um, different Old Testament authors refer back and forth to one another, too. So um, we'll see in... Um, like in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, in uh, verses 2 and 11, um, Daniel not only refers to uh, the prophet Jeremiah and specifically his writings, because he discovers Jeremiah's writings, and he figures out that uh, the time of exile is almost up, but then he also, in the same chapter, refers back to the book of Moses. And so he's holding up the prophecy of Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah, in the same uh, authority as the book of Moses. So they're both something that Daniel uh, sees as being inspired by God. Uh, we see um, 1 Chronicles Now the acts of David the king first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. And so uh, while we don't have copies of the, the book of Nathan or the book of Gad, we do have a copy of uh, the book of Samuel the, the seer, and so he's re again referring to the book of Samuel. Second uh, Chronicles 32.32 also refers to uh, the uh, book of Isaiah, uh, and that being uh, yet another book that... Uh, uh, is verified as being scripture. Uh, 
some of the other uh, specific tests um, in terms of determining uh, canonicity. Uh, did it reflect God speaking through a mediator? Uh, did the book indicate divine authorship? Um, was uh, the human author a spokesman of God? Was he a prophet? Uh, or did he uh, exhibit the gift of prophecy? Uh, was the book historically accurate? Uh, which is why we went over last week how important it is to verify the historical accuracy of the Bible, because if a book is considered to be historically inaccurate, then that means that it's uh, with error, which means it could potentially not be Scripture. So it's vitally important that we make sure that we answer skeptical claims uh, to the historical accuracy of every single book in the Bible, and we don't shy away from those. Um, did it reflect a uh, record of actual facts, and uh, how was it received by the Jews? Uh, which I would say that that last one is a criteria that is questionable just simply because of the fact that the Jews reject the entire New Testament. But if we're looking at how they viewed the Old Testament um, before the New Testament was written, uh, they would generally not allow something to be in the Old Testament that they consider to be heretical. Uh, so we can use that criteria when we're looking at the Old Testament, but I certainly wouldn't extend that past the Old Testament because otherwise we rip the entire New Testament out of our Bible and become Jews. Um, <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> moving on to, uh, we'll conclude here with the uh, canonicity of the New Testament, and then we'll briefly discuss illumination. Um, some of the factors that uh, went into uh, the New Testament canon being developed uh, were that there were so many different writings that were being produced at the time of uh, the letters that were being written by uh, the various uh, apostles uh, that were circulating letters, and also the gospel accounts that uh, there was a, a mutual decision among everyone that it needed to be addressed what was and what was not canon. Uh, we see so many different, you know, quote-unquote lost writings of the New Testament or, uh, you know, um, uh, books that were, you know, removed or never included. And so we have to scrutinize each one of those with uh, different criteria. Again, uh, apostolic uh, authorship. Uh, was it either written by an apostle of Jesus or was it written by someone who was closely associated with an apostle of Jesus? So, for instance, uh, when we look at the Gospels, here's a quick trivia question. Uh, out of the four Gospels, how many of them were written by apostles? Well, uh, so apostles that uh, were disciples of Christ that walked with Christ. Two. John and Matthew, Mark and Luke were never apostles of, directly of Christ, but they still worked under uh, people who were direct disciples. So in the case of uh, Mark, he was directly discipled under Peter, and uh, in the case of Luke, he was directly discipled under Paul, who was considered an apostle, um, who didn't necessarily walk with Christ when he was alive, but he still had the encounter uh, on the, the road to uh, uh, Damascus. So, um, again, was it written by an apostle or was it written by someone with close apostolic um, affiliation? Now, again, this criteria is a little loose because then we have to get into, can we determine the authenticity that the letter or writing was written by who it claims to be written by? because there are plenty of writings that uh, circulated around at that time 
that claims to be written by people like Peter, people like John, or people that would have been uh, closely associated with uh, one of uh, those individuals, such as uh, Polycarp. Um, and this is when we look at other uh, criteria to determine uh, whether or not that, that claim is accurate. And so we want to make sure we're looking at the content. Does the content directly uh, contradict anything that is already established doctrine? How is it received by the church at the time? Was it widely circulated? Uh, how many copies do we have of it? You know, are we basing uh, our authority of whether or not something is authentic by the fact that we found like one torn up, uh, partial copy of it? Uh, you know, in the desert during an archaeological dig, when we have thousands of manuscripts of other affirmed copies of canonical books, uh, you know, that's something we want to take into consideration. We do see uh, a couple of instances where uh, the New Testament itself, um, just like the Old Testament, uh, some of the authors refer to other books and uh, lend them authority and approval. Um, one of the scriptures we went over in a previous lesson was uh, in 1 Timothy 5.18. That's when Paul refers to both the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Luke simultaneously, counts them both as scripture, and so he's elevating the book of Luke to the same level as one of the books of Moses which has been accepted by the Jews for, you know, a thousand years uh, prior to that. Um, we also see um, in 2 Peter three fifteen and 16, um, Peter refers to the writings of Paul. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So obviously if he's referring to Paul's writings and he's referring to the other scriptures, logic would dictate that Paul's writings are scriptures, because why would he throw in that uh, qualifier, uh, the other scriptures? Um, we see that uh, some of the letters came with instructions to circulate them in the church, or uh, are verified as being circulated in the church at that time, not in the later church, but in the church that existed during the time of the apostles. We see uh, examples of that in Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Colossians 4.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.27, we see that those letters are being circulated in the church. <clears throat> so these are um, just a, a few methods of determining uh, whether or not a book is part of the accepted canon. Uh, you know, authorship, is it an apostle, uh, is it written by an apostle, is it written by somebody with close association with an apostle, what is the content, does it reflect uh, what was generally considered to be Orthodox Christian beliefs at that time during the early church? Uh, does it have mention in other scriptures you know, that agree with it? Uh, all of those things. Um, by the time of the 4th century, well actually as far back as... Uh, as far back as the second century, in 170 AD, you had the uh, what was called the Muratorian uh, Canon. Uh, that was a compilation of books recognized as canonical at that early date uh, in the church. Now, there were some disputed texts all throughout. Um, for instance, uh, the Book of Hebrews, the Book of James, and uh, uh, as well as Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude. Uh, they have been contested numerous times. Um, 
by some of these early councils, and those are some of the council or some of the books that were contested in uh, the Migratorian canon. Um, by the fourth century, uh, you had a pretty prominent recognition of the New Testament canon. Um, you had a few different councils uh, that met uh, on that subject. Um, Athenaeus uh, wrote in 367 AD, uh, confirming the 27 uh, books of the New Testament that we have. Um, there was the Council of Laodicea, uh, the Council of Hippo in 393, the Council of Carthage in 397, and all of these uh, affirm the 27 books that we have in our New Testament canon. So we see now in early church history, uh, again, that consistency of uh, the New Testament canon being affirmed. By this point in time, the contested books had been accepted and they had just continued to circulate. Any questions on any of that before I conclude with a, a few brief words on illumination? One thing that I, I neglected to mention uh, before, just uh, for the sake of time, but I do think it's important to mention now, is that inspiration, inspiration uh, only applies to the original authors, and inerrancy only applies to the original manuscripts. And so we cannot look at any translation of the Bible that we have now and say this is you know, absolutely the inerrant word of God because it's not the original manuscript. Now what we can do is we can uh, view the consistency of the manuscripts that have been preserved, and that's a separate doctrine because God has preserved his word. But to say that this is inerrant and inspired, you know, this King James Bible that I have in front of me or, you know, whatever translation you have, would be to say that the translators were also inspired and that every single one of these words is now inerrant. So we have to keep that in mind, and that's where the further back we go, the more we want to familiarize ourselves with what, was, what were the authors writing in these original languages. So this is why Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic matter so much. And that's why a lot of times you'll hear pastors and, and teachers saying, you know, well, in, in the Greek, this word means, because they're trying to explain to us, you know, this is where we get our translation. Uh, and sometimes you can see that in different translations, somebody might approach how they're communicating the word differently. But how many times do we use synonyms in uh, everyday conversation? So as long as we're not necessarily presenting a completely new thought or idea, uh, that translation, you know, between one translation and another might still be accurate. It's just the translator is expressing themselves differently than what the original manuscript expressed. But it's still accurate, if that makes any sense at all. <clears throat> but yeah, that's, that's a, a great point. Um, and uh, honestly, that, that brings us to illumination, and I'll... Uh, conclude with this very quickly because I don't want to take up Brad's time, but really uh, illumination just simply means uh, the Spirit is who illuminates the scriptures for us. And uh, we've already gone over a lot of these scriptures before. I've, I've talked uh, from the book of John uh, frequently. I've, I've quoted uh, John 14, 26, John 16, 13, uh, 14 and 15. Um, you guys can look those scriptures up on your own, but that's just a few places where Jesus talks about the Spirit coming uh, you know, after he ascends and the Spirit illuminating the scriptures for us. Paul talks about this, and we can go here very quickly uh, and conclude with this, because this is worth actually um, <coughs> reading through. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2.
Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. And then Paul goes on to say, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ." And all of that is to say that when we're approaching the scriptures, we need to approach them on God's terms. Which is why I am deadly serious every time I teach from the Bible. Because I want to make sure that you're getting information that is reflected in the scriptures. Not my personal opinion, not church history, but what do the scriptures actually say. Because sometimes church history can be wrong, and I certainly am capable of error. But if I'm just going based off the scriptures, we have the inerrant, inspired word of God before us that's been preserved. We can verify that through the consistency of manuscripts, and when we are illuminated through, or when the words are illuminated, rather, through the Spirit, we're given clarity in what God is communicating to us. This is why I always suggest when you're reading the Bible, you know, whether you're reading for five minutes in the morning for a devotion, or whether you're following along in church at a service, or whether you're reading an entire chapter or an entire book of the Bible, you know, for your own personal reading, whatever you're doing, always enter reading through prayer. You want to be praying to God, illuminate these scriptures for me every single time. Don't take it for granted that just because you prayed like one time five years ago, you know, for insight into the Bible, that God's going to be like, well, you prayed that one time, so I guess your heart's still the same, so you're ready to receive my words, right? No, because sometimes we change. So we want to make sure every day that we're praying that same prayer, like illuminate these scriptures for me, teach me what you want me to hear. Not what I want to get out of it, because my own personal opinion, I might not agree with something. And that's why we get really bad doctrine in a lot of churches, because a lot of it is, unfortunately, the opinions of man. <clears throat> any, uh, any questions on illumination? Or anything we've discussed so far? <clears throat> All right, well, with that, I don't want to uh, get you out of here too late, so I'll conclude us in prayer.